everyone and welcome back to another episode of CQP Moments. As always, I am your host, the Coupon Queen Pen. Guys, it's been a minute since we've had a great fiction author on and my next guest, Nicholas, does just that. So let's take a moment out and we're going to talk fiction and a little bit more with Nicholas. So guys, like I was saying, I have Dr. Nicholas Nicholas and no, this is not a joke. That is really his name. And he's an author. He wrote an amazing book called Pericles and Me. So yes, for all of you mythology buffs, he is out here writing fiction for us. Yes. So Dr. Nicholas, would you please introduce yourself to my listeners? Okay. My name is Nicholas, middle initial C, Nicholas. It's a Greek name. It should be Nicholas Nicolaou, but when my father emigrated to this country, they fixed his name for it to make it sound more American, a common story I've told. Uh, I'm a f- physicist, and all my life I've done work mostly from the de- for the Department of Defense. As a result, I've worked, uh, of course, throughout our country and various projects. I uh, did submarine studies. Uh, in the Caribbean and uh, off our East Coast, and even in Lake Ponderee, Idaho. Uh, I've ridden, in addition to submarines, I've ridden surface ships, helicopters, aircraft. I've bivouacked in the, in, the, in, the, in the woods with troops doing military exercises. And uh, my job was generally to apply physics and various engineering disciplines to solve problems of interest to, the, to our military. Uh, Pericles and Me is a novel. We, we, we labeled it a novel of international intrigue. And it's based largely on the times that I spent in Ukraine. The fall of the Soviet Union was an amazing event, but it left us with a serious problem. There were nuclear weapons in four different so-called republics that used to comprise the uh, Soviet Union. Russia had the bulk of them, but Ukraine was the third largest nuclear power. And when this crash took place, the United States put up some money, the so-called Nunn-Luger bill, to fund the taking down of the nukes. Uh, everybody was going to Russia because they thought the Russians would be able to, to uh, direct the other republics as they did in the past, but we chose to go to Ukraine. As a result, I saw a great deal. I got to meet all kinds of people from the top to the bottom of the Ukrainian government, spent conglomerately uh, periods of many months there, took a walk on the Sea of Azov one year when it was frozen, and uh, came back with a lot of uh, observations and told stories to my friends, and they urged me to write a book, which I finally did. There are some 30-some characters in the book, and I knew them all except one or two who were invented. 
the character of Dave was my partner in, in all of this and is a real person that I still know and am friends with. Pericles and me, why Pericles? Well, I was going to ask that. I was going to say, why Pericles? I mean, because yeah. for those that know who Pericles is, why would you pick the title Pericles and me? Well, Pericles, as you know, was a great Athenian politician who shepherded them through the period of democracy and, right. and, and great developments. Um, the main character in the book is a Dr. Alex Jolouris. He's a Greek-American, and he goes to Greece and magically somehow begins having conversations with Pericles in his dreams. Pericles uh -huh. is a conversationalist for him because a lot of their talk is political. A lot of their talk is historical. They, uh, they also talk about what's going on in, in, in uh, Alex's life, uh, decisions he has to make. And Pericles actually offers him advice based on his instinct as a politician. They find that there are a great many similarities between ancient Athens and the United States. They even use some of the same tactics. For example, when Athens source for wheat on the Black Sea coast became endangered by the restiveness of the local chieftains, they sent a great fleet on a friendship visit. And that settled everybody down without war. Well, if we recall our own history, Teddy Roosevelt sent a great white fleet to the Pacific to put everybody on alert that the United States was willing to defend its interests. And there are a number of, of instances yeah. like this, but mostly Pericles becomes a sounding board for him and a, a mechanism by which he can bring up uh, matters that don't flow easily in a, in a plot. The other, wow. sound, the other sounding board and mechanism for him is his girlfriend. Uh, she's British, they go to Greece together on a trip, and that's when it all starts, when people begin approaching him because somehow it's gotten out that he knows where there is nuclear material that's not recorded anywhere. Uh, I, know that wow. from I know that from personal experience because I was actually offered nuclear material in Ukraine if I could find a way to sell it. When the Soviet Union broke up, an enormous sale happened because they had, squir they had squirreled away enough material to keep 300 fighting divisions in the field for at least a year. That's one of the reasons the country was so poor. Uh, oh, okay. We got into a, an arms race with them, as you understand, and as we all understood. But we could afford it. They could not. And with their crazy economics, you know, which has never worked anywhere, this, you know, their, their socialist notion of what an economy should be, they just collapsed uh, in the late 80s all the republics became restive because they right. couldn't take care of themselves. They couldn't feed themselves. Ukraine was once the breadbasket of Europe and couldn't feed itself, nor could any of the others. And eventually it all came apart. And on December 26th of 1999, uh, the, what was left of the parliament declared an end to it and the sale was on. And so uh, a lot of interest converged on Alex because the word got out that he knew where there, there, there could be some un, unrecorded uh, 
nuclear material, bomb making material. Uh, I came back and I told the Ukrainians who were very frank with me because I went over and offered the services of, of my company and my little, the little group that I ran, little group of engineers to uh, advise them on how to take down the nukes. We were invited to go there, Dave and I and an interpreter. And uh, we met with people from the foreign ministry, the defense ministry and other places like the, uh, uh, with the, with the uh, chairman of the State Committee for Nuclear and Radiation Safety, where we got an earful on Chernobyl. Brother, all you had to whisper is Chernobyl, and this guy would go into orbit because he kept warning them that their reactors were unsafe. Right, right. Chernobyl was a disaster because it had no containment vessel. They couldn't, they felt they couldn't afford it, and they felt they didn't need it. We had Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, where I live. But right, Three Mile Island is 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 in Pennsylvania. Right, yeah, Harrisburg, and there was a meltdown because of an error and the malfunction of uh, of some sensors, but very little radiation escaped because it had a proper containment vessel. So the nukes are safe. Uh, the Soviet nukes weren't because they were trying to save money and resources, and they really don't care about people. They they never did. Um, I had a general tell me that uh, if they had our power, they would have launched the first strike. And I said, but, wow. you would have, but you would have lost tens of millions of your own people. And he said, the Politburo didn't care as long as they won. But they were terrified of us. Ah, and, because at that point, you, um, the United States was a superpower. Oh, one of yeah. the largest superpowers. Yes, we still are. And, uh, but uh, we're not likely to launch a first strike. Uh, but, you know, one other thing that came up in that discussion, which is very valid, we were walking to a building that had been a tank school for a meeting. And uh, there were busts of famous Russian and Soviet generals. And I recognized some of them. And I said, oh, look, there's Zhukov, there's Kosorovsky, there's so on and so on. And they were, and they, were, they were surprised that I knew who these men were. And they said, they, one guy grabbed me and kissed me on both cheeks. They have a legitimate complaint. During the Second World War, the European losses were mostly on the Eastern Front. The Soviets lost 10 million soldiers and something between 10 and 20 million civilians. The United States, during the whole war, lost a grand total of something between three and 400,000 soldiers. Wow. Nothing to sneeze at, but look at the comparison. The British lost a half a million. Uh, the Germans lost a couple of million. The Japanese lost a couple. But imagine that, 30 million people altogether. And, and he's right. They never received the recognition from the West that they should have. Right, right. Well, right. well let's get... So, uh, so okay, I have a question though. How sure. did you go from doing all of that to deciding, hey, you know, I want to write a book. Like you've been all over the world. You could have been giving tours and, you know, teaching people everything that you know and everything that you know to be true and all the facts that possibly have been hidden away from us in history books. 
But what made you say, you know what, I'm going to write this fiction? Well, again, people who listen to my war stories, most of which were humorous, is what I used to tell people, the humorous ones. Um, and they, they liked it. They wanted to hear more. So I decided to write a book. But while writing the book, uh, it, it was an odd thing. I sat down and I started writing. And I never had a book plan. And uh, please, whoever reads my book, don't say it's obvious. I don't think <laughs> I never I never made a book plan. I just kept writing and it just poured out of me. I wrote that book, which is about 400 pages in three months. And it, I got a lot of things off my chest. I got things off my chest about the US government. I got things off my chest about corporate life. I got things off my chest about so-called science and how science can be manipulated. There is a little bit about science in the book. Uh, again, Pericles is a, is a vehicle there because Alex has to, has to explain nuclear weapons to him. But it's not a nuclear physics course, believe me. It's, uh, and, and Pericles, being the gifted man that he is, grasps the essence of it. And, and they talk about it. They talk about Nazis versus communists, which is worse. Uh, Pericles wanted to know which of the two were the worse. I give him an answer that I got from my major professor, who was an Austrian. Which he, was? Which was from Vienna. And he said, they're both awful. He said, but under the Nazis, if you were not a Jew and you, you obeyed clearly stated rules, you could stay out of trouble mostly. Under the Soviets, we never knew what the rules were. You'd wake up one morning and the house across the street would be empty and you'd be afraid to ask. And he says, of the two, I found the more frightening than the Soviets to be the most frightening. And of course, Pericles spoke up and said, oh, well, then, then of course, your major professor was not a Jew. He said, it's, it's no comfort to be hunted openly. So they went a little back and forth on that. So you can get a, a little bit of insight as to how their conversations went because uh, Pericles, I tried to make him free of any of our modern biases and prejudices, but he had his ancient ones. For example, he claimed to be a pure democracy, yet the Athenians held slaves, and women had very little, had very little to say about the household uh, finances. So a little back and forth on that, I thought would, would grease this, the wheels a little bit so that the book didn't become too ponderous. The book takes you to the Middle East as well. I uh, okay. was once senior program manager for the Middle East for the National Science Foundation, spent a good deal of time in Saudi Arabia, and uh, later on, uh, a fair amount of time in Egypt to see how two countries, which are both Muslim countries, could be so different from each other. I mean, Egypt has always had a great deal of contact with the outside world. The Arabian Peninsula, not so much, and that history, has left them with great cultural differences between the two of them. But the characters that I presented in that Egyptian encounter with Saudis, as a matter of fact, who met Alex, who met Alex in Egypt, uh, those characters were based on people I knew. The colonel is based on a Saudi officer whom I knew. And uh, this he was a very smart guy. And he was in the United States often uh, working with our military, 
And when we had that disaster trying to rescue the hostages in Iran, I ran into him on the street and he said to me, do you know why those helicopters failed? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, because they clamped so much security on the operation that even the, the aircraft carriers that carried them close were not allowed to know that it was a desert operation. As a result, they took the dust filters off because they didn't need them in the ocean and the dust choked the engines. And he said, wow. He says, wow. And I said, that's a crazy amount of security. And he said, yes, but I can understand it as a military man. So these, these, these people uh, are complex. You so know, all of all of your characters, like you said, except for two, are basically people that you've met throughout that, this time. That I met, yeah, two or three, perhaps. I, yeah, well, there were some minor characters, like a, a couple of Cypriot workers that I met that that I invented, but they had nothing to do with the plot. They were just a little bit of embroidering. Uh, well, I mean, you have to leave something for some, you know, literary life. Oh, oh, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, those two. My father is actually a Greek Cypriot. My mother, oh, wow. my mother from the mainland. Okay, okay. So, is this your first book? It is. Well, it's my first novel. I've it's your written, first novel. I've written a great deal of great many scientific papers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I've been writing all my life, uh, but uh, never before in a novel form. So, do you plan on writing more? Is is Alex? the main you know main character in a series are we going to see more of this or is is well, somebody gave me a, uh, an idea that i wish i had the talent to exploit he says why just pericles in me why don't you have a lincoln in me a uh, uh a, 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 a somebody else in me a teddy roosevelt in me was one he suggested well i don't know if i have the talent to do all that but i have started a couple of other books one of them is called, I'm not a Greek, I'm from Pittsburgh. Okay. <laughs> and I, I got that title at a bar in Heidelberg, Germany. I spent a number of years working out of Heidelberg. And there was a bar there that had, its patrons were American, British, and German, a lot of uh, friendly bantering. And the Greek national team won the European Cup one year, which was a big shock to fans because they had no big stars. But somehow that team gelled and a German came up to me and he said, you Greeks must be very happy. And I said, I'm not a Greek. I'm from Pittsburgh. No. <laughs> wow. He was, he was completely puzzled. But every American in the place knew exactly what I said, because they were, you know, they're not Irish. They're from Philadelphia. They're not Italian. They're from New York. You know, we're right, all from right, right. And uh, so on. So. It's about my schooling and the, some interesting careers. Now, when I grew up in Pittsburgh in a blue-collar neighborhood, there was a very ethnic. My mother used to joke and say that we were not ethnic, we were international. But uh, all the men that worked and the women all stayed home in those days and took and were housewives mostly, nearly all of them. And uh, the uh, the men all had jobs in steel mills and factories, breweries, and what have you. Uh, they were all blue collar people, but the families worked. They were good families. And my neighborhood produced 
a medical doctor. These are just the kids I played with every day. Medical doctor, a mechanical engineer, a chemist, high school, uh, high school principal. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the physicist in the group. And it shows that low income just doesn't make families go bad. It takes other, you know, there are other factors. That right, play here. right. They, but these were solid people and they took care of their children and uh, taught certain values. And unfortunately, we have too many uh, families in our country now. And this is my personal opinion that that just can't do that or won't do it. Some won't and some can't. And that's a big problem. That's the big social problem we have to face. Uh, not things, nonsense like microaggressions. Right, right. But anyhow, that book, uh, I've, I've written about 50 pages of it. And, and I'm enjoying that too. And that's a kind of a release. You know, you go back and you review things in your life. Um, it's almost therapy, tell you the truth. So this was more of a therapeutic thing for you than to become a renowned author. If I become a renowned author, anything is possible and not, and not everything is possible. No, I won't be a renowned author. My, my book consists mostly of <clears throat> simple declarative sentences. My, uh, my literature professor in college first day said, None of you is going to be a, a, a Shakespeare or a Scott Fitzgerald, but by God, you're going to learn how to write a simple declarative sentence. And that has stood me in good stead, especially when I had to negotiate through, a, through an interpreter. When you talk through an interpreter, you can't use convoluted sentences or slang. You know, today we're going to discuss right. three, three topics. Topic one is, and so on. Um, but I have had the pleasure of meeting some fascinating people. I've Got to shake hands with President Sadat of Egypt and got to meet Madame Sadat when I was there. And uh, I was deeply saddened when he was assassinated because here was a man who evolved all the way from a Nazi sympathizer to the Arab leader who took the first giant step and made peace with Israel. And uh, Madame Sadat was an absolutely charming lady. So, okay, since... You're not trying to, you know. I'm not trying to write next best seller. <laughs> where do you see where do you see Pericles and me going? Where do you see where do you see yourself doing? You know, writing or going forward. Well, there is there is a. Uh, I inadvertently left myself room for a sequel, and a number of people have asked me if I'm going to write a sequel. And well, I'm, I mean, Alex does need a sequel. This is sounding like something that kind of needs, you know, you leave a cliffhanger and then the door is open and, you know, yeah. it's kind of like you can't, you can't do the Netflix thing where there's like this big cliffhanger and then there's never another season. No, 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 no. You're right. Uh, and I have, I have made a start on it. Uh, the, the start of it right now, I'm, I'm at this phase where I'm summarizing what happened in Pericles and me so that I can get on with the next big plot move. And there is a next big plot move. Nice. Said, who doesn't, who doesn't love a plot twist? Who doesn't yes, love that's a plot right. twist? So uh, tell everyone where they can find your awesome book. Well, thank you for that compliment. Uh, it's on um, <clears throat> Amazon, <clears throat> excuse me, Barnes and Noble, and you know all the bookselling uh, sites. 
we're working on a uh, an audio version as I speak. Uh, I have an nice. actor uh, who's who's because a, a number of people have asked me when's the, when's the audio audio version going to come out. So he's working on that. I just got a message from him saying that the first <clears throat> chapters are done. He sent me some. He's going to send me some for review, and uh, I, I'd like to hear that myself. You know, uh, reading it and listening to it are two different things, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that. That will be available probably in three or four months. It takes quite a while to record a book. Well, guys, you're hearing it here. And by the way, for those of you that don't know, his book is also available at one of my favorite places. And I don't probably think he knows this either. It's at Target, the paperback version. Yes, that's right. Uh, well, uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I didn't know that I would enjoy writing this book as much as I did. You can ask my wife. Uh, I was inadvertently and uncharacteristically disciplined because uh, in another book that I've started, which has a tentative title, How I Won the Cold War, I explained that I've had an unusual career. You know, I was the engineering officer in the first simulated Apollo flight. Uh, and wow, okay. It was, it was wonderful working on the Apollo because we didn't know anything. We didn't know what weightlessness was going to do to people and a lot of other things, and we had invented every day. And uh, so I was fitted with a pressure suit, and I went through all the training, and uh, and I sat in that capsule for eight days, and we did everything it takes to fly to the moon. Of course, we didn't go, but the, the purpose was to understand how the uh, the workloads would, would work. And uh, it turns out that our on-duty periods were too long, actually caused us to have minor hallucinations. Wow. I didn't, I didn't see werewolves or anything, but I'm sitting there studying the panel uh, one day, and all of a sudden, all of the dials went from left to right and back, and I shook my head, and they were where they're supposed to be. Little, little hallucinations like that. So you uh, actually like, okay, because this is not something that we normally get to hear is like, you went through all of the training, even though you didn't go up. That's right. Most of it. Wow. Uh, we had to train to understand how to use the systems. And uh, then they uh, put us through a physical training program. Uh, we began weight training. Now I was a kind of a, a kind of a half-baked athlete all my life. I loved playing sports. I played football, baseball, basketball, tennis, name it. I've played it. I have a grandson who's like that. I asked him what his favorite sport was, and he said, what season is it? Well, that's the way I was. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you can't, you can't like just love one, one sport. I mean, then it's like one season and then. Well, this yeah. boy, this boy is a gifted athlete, but he's had a disaster this year. He, he grew six inches all at once. <laughs> oh yeah he's had a growth spurt that's awesome <laughs> yeah, and he, and he's coming he's getting his speed and agility back though he, it hasn't left him permanently so we started with weight training and uh i was training in the gym one day and this bulgarian weight training coach came in and he watched me and he said to me how much do you weigh and i said 190 pounds and he said do you think you could lose two pounds and i said i guess so he says, because your totals exceed those of the 189-pound state champions. <laughs> and, uh, he said, I would like to train you. 
So he told me I had to quit my job, eat what he told me to eat, and in the end, I'd get a trophy. I, that seemed like too big a price to me, so I didn't do it. Wow, but, wow. So, was, so you're, do, like, you're doing all of this. You've got physics. You've been on Apollo. You've been, uh, and I mean... I have to ask this, Dr. Nicholas, like, why aren't you teaching a master class? Like, I feel I have learned so much. I feel like I have had a crash course in everything American history right now. And it was so much fun that my professors could not teach me in four years of getting my bachelor's. Well, um, what would I call the course to begin with? <laughs> Nicholas's. Nicholas's meanderings. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the title of one of the books that I've started writing uh, is called uh, Operation Wet Launch and Other Tales of Momus. Now, Momus was the Greek god of satire and humor. Right. And, uh, so uh, these, are, these are funny things that have happened throughout my career. Operation Wet Launch was a tale of a, I was on a submarine and I won't go into details, but all of a sudden the boat shook like a big pair of hands shook, grabbed it and shook it like a cocktail shaker. And we never found out what caused it, but it caused the old sailors to complain that they never volunteered for anything again because it got them depth charged during the war and scared the hell out of them. So this young seaman, all he heard was the word volunteer and he said, I'll volunteer. And they had him hooked. So we cooked up this operation called Operation Wet Launch where we were going to put him in a dinghy to tap out messages to the submarine with a pot and a spoon so we could calibrate the sonar. And I gave him a lecture on underwater acoustics, which, believe you me, the gods of science are still spinning in our graves. And uh, the, <laughs> the executive officer was in on it. And the captain pretended it wasn't happening because it was the end of the cruise, and the crew had been underwater for three months. And they needed a little comic relief. So came the time of the operation, here he comes into the conning tower, and he's wearing commando garb with blackface, infrared goggles, flippers, flashlights, knives, and he's got every piece of gear the U.S. Navy owns hanging from his belt, and this kid's really sweating it out. So we had a countdown. At the end of the countdown, they handed him an envelope stamped top secret, and he opened it up, and inside was a beautifully inscribed vellum document declaring him the winner of the annual Dunass Award. And this poor kid kept looking <laughs> at it and looking up and said, you mean there's no mission? And I, I collapsed from laughing. <laughs> this poor but guy, he thought came, there was a mission all the time. He, he, he bought it. But look, he had, he had a scientist brief him. He had the executive officer brief him. And he had the chiefs brief him. I mean, how much, how much pressure can a young kid take uh, and not believe? But... The upshot was good. He became very popular. The older chiefs took him under their wings. And, and so it, it all worked out well in the end. And he was a good kid. He took it well. He was not, you know, he was not wounded by it. Uh, so that was, that's Operation Wetline. So I used that for the title of the book. Wow. And then there are all kinds of, I mean, there are all kinds of hilarious things that happen in life and, and especially in the military. I, mean, I see, people. I see. And it seems like you have lived through so much. Like, I mean, we're talking the end of the Cold War, 
the separation of the USSR. And for those of you that don't know, Russia wasn't always just Russia. Because no, I, I know some of you Gen Zers are going to get on me like, what are you talking about? Yeah, no, Russia wasn't always just Russia. We had something called the USSR and the Cold War. And guess what? If you take half a few seconds, you can Google it. <laughs> and, and you may not believe the stuff you read. It's so fantastic. It, it was, it was, yes, it was an interesting and and dangerous, phenomenal time to live through. We we came very close to nuclear exchanges more than once. Yeah, just the Cuban, not just the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I did some some work on the Persian missile system in Europe. And I had the lofty title of Director of Unconventional Warfare Studies. Put that in plain English. Our uh, short-range missiles were there, intermediate-range missiles formerly called, to counter the huge Soviet advantage in tanks and men. Wow. When, and if they, were, if they would ever mass to attack, these short-range nukes were there to, to, to break up their concentrations. Of course, they had theirs. We had over 600 nuclear missiles in Europe, and they had more. So, uh, wow, this was a very dangerous situation. And during that time, we learned this after the Cold War. We didn't know it. It was during Ronald Reagan's administration, and the Soviets were terrified of us. And they were there are members of the public who were sure that we were getting ready to launch a first strike. And it's only by good fortune that the right man was sitting at the right spot when they got a notice from one of their satellites that we had launched a nuclear missile. And he's supposed to automatically inform their own missile forces who were supposed to automatically launch their missiles. But he thought it was strange that we only launched one. So he overrode it. A little later, he got another launch. He overrode it again. And then later on, their own systems told them that those were false uh, indications. Now that's oh, pretty wow. close. I think, I think that's closer than the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, right. Wow. This, this guy uh, is a hero in my mind. Right. You, I'm telling you, you should definitely do some sort of master class. <laughs> you should. You really should. Like, and, and I know my listeners would agree with me. You should definitely do some sort of masterclass where you are telling these stories because these are things that, I mean, I know I'm a history buff, but these are things that I didn't even know. Well, and there are also, of course, there's a gigantic number of things that I don't know. The world is a complex place. It sure is. It sure is. And, uh, and, and you know, we keep looking for simple solutions. So. I think it was Will Rogers who said, for every complicated problem, there is a simple solution. It sure as damn is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, wow, wow. Will Rogers was never president. So. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, Dr. Nichols, it has been amazing having you. Well, thank you. And for those of you that don't know, all of this information will be in the show notes so you can find out where you can get Pericles and me. And I'm telling you, he, he, he thinks that I'm, I'm saying this, I'm going to say it again. He needs to do some sort of masterclass so mm -hmm. that we can all listen to these amazing stories that he has. <laughs>
If you serve drinks, if you serve drinks, the stories will be even more amazing. <laughs> if we serve drinks, I think some people won't remember what they're re- they're listening to. <laughs> That's fine. I will remember. But it has been amazing having you, and thank you. Well, you're quite welcome. My pleasure, really. I enjoyed talking with you. And that's not uh, just to return a compliment. It's true. Thank you. You're a good listener. Thank you. So, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. And don't forget to go out and buy the book. Like I said, it's available at Target. But as always, guys, be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and happy shopping. Hi, everyone. This is Mark from the Mark the Shark of MA Show, and you are listening to CQP Moments.